And I'm excited about jumping in. The name of this sermon is the ever-restoring message of Christmas. And I love Christmas season. I know many of you love Christmas season. Um, this is a time I think we put a lot of effort into trying to have the perfect Christmas, right? We're trying to create this kind of Hallmark Christmas movie experience. You know what I mean? How many of you understand what I say when I say Hallmark Christmas movie experience? Right? Thank you. Thank you that somebody said it and I didn't have to, but I'm going to anyway. So um, there is, uh, there's a thing, there's this subculture, I would say, in, in our country of Hallmark Christmas movie people. I'm married to one. She loves them. And um, if you don't know what those are, there's this whole culture of people who wait for those things. They wait all year. They're waiting all year for Hallmark to kick off these Christmas movies. And if you've never watched one... Um, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you the script. I'm going to be sweet about it, but I'm going to give you the script that's essentially every Hallmark Christmas movie in the history of, uh, of cinema. Here they are. Um, there is always a small town guy, you know, a small business owner, uh, maybe a, you know, a, some sort of Christmas tree farmer, I don't know, that always wears sweaters. Anyway, just a small town guy, right? And uh, he, he meets this city girl who comes out of the city, and she's in this small town for some reason. Maybe it's her hometown. And, and they meet, and they get on each other's nerves for 90 minutes. And uh, for the last 20 minutes, though, somehow they magically fall in love, and Christmas is saved, right? <laughs> and there it is. That's every script ever. And so if you're wondering, is the script to all those movies the same? The answer is yes. Yes, it is. And if you're wondering are the, if the people who watch them act surprised every time Susan falls in love with the baker, the answer is yes, they do. They act surprised every time. It's like, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, you did know that was going to happen. Because every time she left New York and came to Iowa, she falls in love with the same dude, all right? So I'm just saying, it's the same deal. And, uh, <laughs> but I think there's times we kind of get fascinated with this season and... Um, I want to tell you, the first Christmas, nothing like that. Uh, nothing perfect about it. Uh, matter of fact, as we navigate through this morning, we're going to discover there was a lot of brokenness in the first Christmas. And I think the more that we labor to try to create this, this perfect experience, we tend to let that real message and meaning get lost the, the real restoring message of Christ, um, which is what Christmas is really all about. And that's what I want us to look at today. So I'm excited to jump in. Grab your Bible. Go to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And we're really going to read through um, the Christmas story that we find in Luke 2. Maybe your family's kind of like ours on Christmas Eve. We read uh, the Christmas story that you find in Luke chapter 2. And that's where we're going to uh, be spending our time this morning. We're going to start right there in verse 1. God's Word says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should, should be registered. This was the first registration of Quirinius. It's a hard word to say, by the way. I practiced. Uh, when he was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And he went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for him to give, for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. 
And she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds who were living out in the field and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on the earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen, heard and seen as it has been told to them. Father, for the next moments, I pray that our hearts um, would just be open to hear your voice, Lord. And God, I pray that we really would see clearly the ever-restoring message of the gospel and of Christmas and of your son, Jesus Christ, today. And God, I pray that you would bring salvation into this room. Father, that, that you would restore today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we really dive into kind of the meat of it, I think it's going to be important to give some historical context to what's going on here in Luke chapter 1. I think it's important to kind of understand the world that Jesus was born into. And I want us to see that world um, in when he was born, where he was born, and who he came to. And so the first thing I want you to know is this. Jesus came at a very broken time in history. He came at a very broken time in history. In Luke chapter one, 2, verse 1, look at that verse again. It says, And in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now bound up in that one little sentence, in that one little sentence there is a, a summation of massive Roman oppression, and it's easy to miss, right? Because really, the rule of Rome, which by the way, at this time, Rome was ruling most of the known planet, most of the known planet Earth. Now, there were sections they didn't know, but most of the Earth that, had, that was fully known, Rome ruled it. And there are two words that can really sum up the rule of Rome, oppression and taxation, that's really the two words. So when we read this sentence and that a decree went out that all the world should be registered, we tend to just see it as the first line of the Christmas story, right? This is just how we get into the Christmas story. But the truth is, this, this um, verse is the latest example of Rome's oppression. And Caesar wanted um, to show the supremacy of Rome, so he takes this census. And really, there was only two regions, reasons to do uh, have everyone register like this. The first was for military power. Um, if he needed to know how many men there were 
in the Roman Empire because especially if you were a conquered people, you had to serve in the Roman army. So he wanted to know how big his army could be and that everyone that um, should be in the army was in the army. Um, the other was for the money. The other was strictly for the money. In effect, Caesar was saying, I need to know how many of you there are in the empire because I want to know how much I can get out of you. I want to know how rich I'm going to be. I want to know how rich Rome is going to be. And Roman taxation was unbelievably oppressive, unbelievably oppressive, especially if you were a conquered people, which most of them were. Understand, most of the Roman Empire were made up of conquered peoples. And um, if you were in that group, it was insanely oppressive. Scholars said somewhere between 50 and 60% of what you earned, made, uh, owned, or grew was sent as taxation to Rome. And it says this decree went out from a guy named Caesar Augustus. Now, who was that dude? First thing I want you to know, not his real name. His real name was not Caesar Augustus. His real name was Gaius Octavius. And Octavius was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And when Julius Caesar died, um, Octavius became emperor. But when Octavius became emperor, he changed his name, and here's why. He had a bit of an ego, and he wanted to be remembered as the greatest emperor that had ever ruled Rome. And so he dropped Octavius, and he took on the name Augustus. And he did that because Augustus was a divine word, meaning of the gods. So he dropped Octavius, and he took on Augustus to essentially be called the Caesar that is of the gods. And so he fancied himself to be a god, and he wanted, to be, wanted people to relate to him as a god. And because he thought he was a god, he did whatever he wanted. And he taxed the people however he wanted, cruelly and with this heavy burden. And he didn't care about the burden it placed on him. He didn't care how this registration completely disrupted their lives. He didn't care that it caused families to have to uproot and go in some situations hundreds of miles from their home to the place of their lineage to register there. He didn't care if you were old. He didn't care if you were sick. He didn't care if it caused you to have to leave your work. This was one man putting his foot on the neck of millions of people. And this is the broken time Jesus was born into. But the evidence of this broken time is even beyond Caesar because, you see, Augustus had put a man in place named Herod. And Herod was a Jewish king that Augustus had put into place. And Herod, by all historical accounts, was a psychotic murderer. That's who he was. He was a mentally unstable, psychotic murderer. Historians compared him to Joseph Stalin. That, that's the closest comparison that they had for Herod. Um, Herod had been put into place, even though he was a Jewish man, he had been put in place as king because he was wealthy, he was powerful, and he was willing to bow down to Rome. And um, Herod had um, murdered members of his own family because he considered them a threat. He had completely wiped out the line of the dynasty before him he had killed every man in that family so that their line would die and it would be wiped out of history. This is the same Herod that after Jesus was born and he found out that one that might be called king was born, he had every male two years old and younger murdered around the area of Bethlehem. Jesus was born in a very broken time. 
Not only that, Jesus was born in a very broken place. He was born in Bethlehem. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. I think it's important here because Bethlehem is one of those things we've kind of, uh, we, we almost act like it's a fictitious place. Bethlehem is a very real place. It's not a made-up place in a story. Jesus was not born in Narnia, all right? He wasn't born in Oz. He wasn't born in Middle Earth or at Hogwarts or whatever you're thinking right now or a galaxy far, far away. He was born in a real city called Bethlehem, all right? It's a city that still exists. It's about seven miles from Jerusalem. It's about 100 miles from Nazareth, which is how far Mary and Joseph had to travel. It's about 7,000 miles from Gilmer, if you're looking to make a day trip over just to go see the sights. Um, and in our minds, Bethlehem has become this romanticized, picturesque place, right? When we think of it, it's almost like we're thinking of these, one of these little mountain villages out of a Christmas movie with a quaint little main street and antique shops and a Christmas tree in the courtyard, but nothing could be further from the truth. This was a very poor, isolated, small, completely inadequate, broken place. And you see that in the way the prophet Micah described it. Some 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Micah prophesied that Jesus, that the Savior would be born in this town. Look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now listen, it would have made perfect sense for Jesus to be born in Jerusalem, right? That is the center of the Jewish people. It would have made perfect sense for the king of the Jews to be born there. It would have made perfect sense for him to be born in Rome, the center of the known world, but he wasn't born there. It would have made more sense even for him to be born in Nazareth, which was at least a city of size. But here we see him in this poor, broken down, inadequate place called Bethlehem, too small to even be included as a clan of Judah. But this is the place where Jesus was born. So it's a broken time. It's a broken place. You see the evidence even further of the, broken, the brokenness of this place in verses 6 and 7 that says, And while they, while they were there, while they were in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. Now, I have to imagine Mary wasn't too happy about that. Something tells me she wanted to have her first baby at home in comfort with the people she knew and who had helped care for her up to that moment. But here she is a hundred miles from home, and the time came to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger. Because even in the tiny little broke-down inn, they, they, they couldn't get in. Um, some historians said they believed in Bethlehem. The stable where the animals, animals were kept was actually right in the middle of the city. <laughs> no privacy, folks. All right? And so here she is. Well, what, what were swaddling cloths? Because those sound super sweet, right? We always say those, and no, swaddle, that's a sweet. This was basically whatever rags they brought with them or could find in the stable, right? And a manger, now that's something we've really romanticized. We've created this kind of wood, beautiful thing with fresh hay coming out of it that's all sweet when you lay the baby Jesus in it. But the truth is, it was a feeding trough that was probably 
carved out of stone. So moms, I just want you to remember when you had your first one, everybody go back to, to baby number one and think, all right, I've had baby number one. I'm going to wrap my newborn baby in some dirty rags and I'm going to clear off this concrete slab of the pig slop and just, just lay him there, right? Nobody's going to do that. But that is the broken place where Jesus was born. It's a broken time. It's a broken place. I want you to also know Jesus came to a broken people. Look at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, shepherds in the first century were the lowest of the low. <laughs> they Socially, you didn't get lower than being a shepherd, right? Now, we tend to honor shepherds. You go to a Christmas play or a Christmas pageant, we tend to honor shepherds, but the religious leaders in that time, they didn't do that. We've kind of romanticized them a little bit. As a matter of fact, you're looking at a guy who uh, more than once has reprised a role as a shepherd in a Christmas play. I, I've got a picture of me from back in the day when I was in a Christmas production. Let's put that up real quick. Look at that guy. That ain't nothing but robe and ears. You know what I mean? Uh, actually, in that particular play, I played a wise man, uh, but I want you to know oftentimes I was double cast because, you know, when you got it, you got it. And um, I would be cast as a shepherd, a wise man, a king, just whatever the role called for. I was versatile, Wes. I just did it. I handled it. And uh, anyway, we kind of romanticized them, and uh, that, that's, that's what we did. How many of you have ever played a shepherd in a Christmas play? Just show of hands. How many of you have ever seen a Christmas play in your life? Come on now, right? Okay. They had shepherds, and we thought they were really cool, right? We made them. In the first century, nobody thought shepherds were cute. Nobody thought they were important. Um, as a matter of fact, rabbis would teach most shepherds were mean, dishonest criminals. And that's what the rabbis taught people uh, about these, which was why they were outcasts. It's why they spent all their time outside of society. This was really a class of nobodies that had been relegated to a life of poverty with no means of improving their state. This, this was a shepherd. And yet, listen, that's the broken people who were first to hear the restoring message of Christmas. Now, why take time to look at that? Because I think if I were to try and describe what I see in Luke chapter 2 in one word, the coming of Jesus, it would be broken. Jesus came at a broken time in a broken place, to a broken people. But listen, that ought to give us some hope. Here's why. Because we live in a broken world. Because our lives are broken. Because this world is filled with powerful people who care only for themselves. Because um, there are places and there are people, uh, people who feel insignificant and who feel discounted. And that may be you this morning. And I want you to hear the ever-restoring message of Christmas is for you because Jesus came for you. And that brings us to the first big truth of the morning, and that's this. Jesus came to step into our brokenness. He came to step into our brokenness. Verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that is for all the people. For unto you, broken people, is born this day at a broken time in the city of David, that broken place, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What is Christmas? It is this, that Jesus condescended to us. He came down to us. It is why we call his name Emmanuel. It means God with us. And I want you to hear me say this. Jesus is not afraid of your brokenness. He's not afraid of the shattered fragments of your life. He's not afraid of the areas for, of your life that are imperfect and are messed up. He's not afraid of those areas that no one else knows about. Those are the areas he came for. That's the life and the version of you that he came for. And over and over in the Bible, we see Jesus going to, running to, stepping into the lives of broken people. You see it with the blind man beside the road. You see it with the woman caught in adultery. You see it with the woman at the well. You see it with those covered in leprosy. You see it with the lame man beside the pool. Jesus over and over again stepping into people's mess, showing them his love. That's what he wants to do for you as well. You know, when I was in uh, high school, I've told, I've told you before that I worked at a hardware store when I was uh, like 16, which is hilarious because um, I know nothing about hardware, still don't, um, nothing at all. I had two goals in that hardware store, two. This was the only two goals. One, don't sell someone something that'll kill them. Just please avoid that if you can. And two, don't do anything that's going to cause their house to burn down. If I could avoid those two things, it's a great day at work. And so uh, I'd been working at this True Value Hardware store uh, in Dangerfield for a week or two. I mean, I would just started. And someone comes in with a uh, AC unit, a window unit, right? They come in, they go, hey, this thing's making a funny noise. That was the full description we got of what was wrong with this thing. It makes a funny noise. And I remember thinking, by the way, if you're a mechanic in here or you work on things, whether it's cars or something, I feel for you now because it has to drive you crazy when the full description you get, yeah, I was driving around, it's making a funny noise, right? What do I do with that? That's how I felt, right? So they bring this window unit in. My boss, who was a really good man, Mr. Jones, he takes the window unit from him, hands it to me. I'm holding this window unit. He looks at him and says, we're going to get this taken care of. I'll let you know when it's ready. And then he looks at me, and I'm waiting for him to say, all right, Darby, take that and put it back there, and I'll send someone who has a clue to fix it here in just a minute. Instead, what he said was, Matt, why don't you take this window unit, take it back there to the work uh, room, and see if you can figure out what's wrong with it. And I'm like, hey, man, Mr. Jones, I could probably plug this in and turn it on. That's about the extent of what I know to do with this AC unit. But he fully expected me to fix it. So I take it back to the workroom. I set it on the workbench. I'm looking at it. I don't even know what to do. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I say, well, there's a screwdriver and there's a pair of pliers. Let's just get in it and see what happens. So I start dismantling this thing. Listen, I never plugged it in to try to hear what was wrong with it. Never. I just like, tear it up. Let's see what happens. So I start taking this thing apart, and an hour or two later, he walks by, and I know that he fully expects me to say, Mr. Jones, here's what's wrong with it. Got it fixed. Call him and let him know it's ready. Instead, what he found was 16-year-old Matt sitting on the floor with dozens of AC parts around him. He didn't know what any of them were, none of them. I didn't know what any of them were. And a look on my face that said, I'm about three seconds away from quitting this job. That's what he walked in and saw and I knew if you've ever had someone look at you and they were just 
so disappointed. He looks at me, and I knew immediately he's thinking two things. One, I've made a terrible decision in hiring this fool. And two, I need to get him some help. I need to get somebody to come and step into this mess and fix it, right? And so he sends over Mr. Vernon. Mr. Vernon had been there forever. He had fixed these before, and Mr. Vernon comes over. Listen, the point is Jesus came to step into our mess. He came to step into our brokenness. He came to see those areas of our life that are completely undone. Hear me say this. Jesus did not come for the Christmas card version of you and your family. He didn't come for that version of you. He came for the version of you that's addicted to sin. He came for the version of you that lives with lies out of your mouth and lies in your life. He came for the version of you that is battling lust in your heart and you don't know what to do with it. He came from the version of you with a broken marriage. He came for that version of you that hides and lies and cheats and holds back. That's the version he came for. I want you to imagine that if when Mr. Vernon walked up to help me, very quickly before he got there, I took all those parts and I threw them back under the casing of that window unit and put it on real quick and went, look, Mr. Vernon, doesn't that look good? Right? That is exactly what some of you are doing with your life before God right now. You are taking all this brokenness and you're throwing it back under some religious covering and covering it as quickly as you can and going, look God, doesn't this look good? And all the while, it's just broken. And I think somehow we've believed we can hide our brokenness. And I'm telling you, he came for our brokenness. It's why we have Christmas at all. Jesus came to step. He didn't come for the Christmas card version. He came for the real you, the broken you. Here's a second one. Not only did Jesus come to step into our brokenness, he came to restore our brokenness. He came to bring restoration. Look at verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. And then I want you to notice the three titles given to Jesus. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. I think it's important that we take a minute and look at those titles because they're all unique they're all important, and they are all given to us in fullness in the restoring message of the gospel. What does Savior mean? What is that? See, for us in, in, in our time, that has a lot of uh, religious and spiritual overtones. But the truth is, in the first century, it didn't have any of that. This was a very common title that was given to politicians and uh, military heroes, people's, people who had done great heroic things for their society, people who had overcome great obstacles and defeated enemies. Um, it was given by the name, uh, excuse me, by the way, to the God of healing, the Roman God of healing. They, they gave the name Savior. It was given to uh, Zeus. They called him Savior. This word simply meant someone who preserves life and prevents disaster. That's what the word Savior means, someone who preserves life and prevents disaster. But listen, that's why it is a perfect title from the mouth of the angels to describe Jesus. That's why it's a perfect one. 
because Jesus is the only real hero this earth will ever know. He is the only one who can fully preserve our life. He is the only one who can fully rescue us from eternal disaster. He's the only real Savior. It's a perfect title for him. They called him Christ. Now that would have had a special meaning, especially if you were Jewish. This was the title given to the promised Messiah in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the Jews were, for thousands of years, were looking forward to the day when God would send a king, one who would rule the entire world, and the Hebrew word for that king was Messiah, right? It meant the anointed one, the chosen one. Now, later in the New Testament, the word Messiah is translated to the Greek word Christo, where we get our word Christ. But that's what they mean. This is God's anointed. This is Jesus the Christ. And they gave him, the angels give him that title because he is the perfect, full fulfillment of every promise of God for the Messiah. That is Jesus. He has the greatest anointing. If Messiah means anointed one, Jesus has the fullest, deepest anointing. He has the spirit in its fullest measure. And listen, as you receive him as Savior and receive him as Christ, he invites you into that fullness. He invites you in to experience that anointing. He invites you in to experience the fullness of the Spirit. He is Savior. He is Christ. And then the angels call him Lord. Over 40 times in the book of Acts alone, just in the book of Acts, the early church refers to Jesus as Lord over and over and over again. It is the earliest confession of Christianity. Jesus is Lord. That's because the earliest believers, they didn't know how to relate to him any other way. They didn't have any context for calling him anything else. It was impossible for them to think about him any other way or talk about him any other way other than Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth that what? That he is Lord. And the reason they couldn't have a context for calling him anything else was because they thought, if this Jesus is the Savior, if he's the hero, if he's the one who has preserved our life and prevented eternal disaster, if this Jesus is the Christ, fulfilling every promise of God, the fullness of God, the, the, the one who has been anointed by God to save the world, if he is Savior and if he is Christ, then he must be Lord, and who am I not to surrender my life to him? Lord means I have come under the banner of his sovereign rule and surrendered everything that I am to the fullness of who he is. That is salvation. And listen, this morning, I wonder if you've done that. I want you to hear me say it is not enough to think Jesus is a good person, was maybe even a hero. Not enough. It's not enough to even say, yeah, I think he was from God. Not enough. It isn't until you have said, I see him as the hero. I see him as God's anointed. And I surrender to him as Lord. That is when you get the peace of God that the angels are talking about in the very next verse, in verse 14. They said, um, what, what's the fruit of this? Glory to God in the highest and on the earth, peace 
among those with whom he is pleased. Listen, the peace of God is for those with whom God is pleased. Well, how do I please God? You get in right relationship with him. And I want to tell you, God's word says this, without faith in Jesus, it's impossible to please God. You can't do it. And some of you are exhausted because you are laboring to manufacture a peace in your life apart from a relationship with God. And you wonder why you're exhausted and defeated and frustrated and you feel like something's missing and you're longing for a peace that lasts and a peace that matters and a peace that's not dependent on your circumstances and it's not dependent on the bills being paid and it's not dependent on your health. It's a peace that is supernatural and it's missing in your life and it is because you are not in right relationship with God. And without faith in Jesus, it is impossible to please God. And yet the very first message of Christmas is the peace of God is for those with whom God is pleased. God is pleased when we are in right relationship with him. Nothing pleases him more. How do I do that? I see Jesus as Savior. I see him as Christ. And I declare that he's my Lord and I surrender my life to him. That is the ever-restoring message of Christmas and I'm telling you right in the middle of your mess right now right in the middle of your life that feels so broken and chaotic and messed up you can have peace you can have peace the peace of God God does not love you from a distance he loves you enough to step right into the brokenness of your life. How do we respond to that? I think we respond the way the shepherds responded. Verse 15, it says, And when the angels went away, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go. <laughs> we got to go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. And when they got there, what did they do? They, they made known to everyone that was there, to Mary and Joseph, everything that's been said to them. Here's what happened. The shepherds believed and the shepherds proclaimed. From the very first Christmas, those that had experienced Jesus proclaimed Jesus. So for those of you in this room right now, who would say, I have experienced Jesus as Savior. He's the hero of my life. I've experienced him as Christ, as God's anointed, who is the King. I've experienced him as Lord, and I've surrendered to him. I want you to hear me say, you have the mandate now to go and proclaim. And if you aren't proclaiming, I need you to back up to the moment where he say you changed you and ask yourself, did he transform me? Because listen, these shepherds, nothing changed in their life, and yet everything changed. They were still shepherds. Rome was still in charge, and the rabbis still didn't like them. But yet somehow, everything had changed. Why? Because they had seen the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. Have you made Jesus the Lord of your life, or are you laboring to create a peace on your own? Some of you this morning, you need to come for the first time, and you need to say, I need the peace of God, and I need, I need the Lord Jesus to rule my life. I need to surrender to him. In a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And the moment we start singing, you need to start moving and you need to come take somebody by the hand and go, I just need to give Jesus my heart today. I'm 
tired of it. I'm tired of trying. I need to surrender. For the rest of us, as we worship, there needs to be a sense of urgency that sparks up. It says the shepherds went with haste immediately, instantly. They believed it and they went and they told it. The message of Christmas is an ever restoring message of life and hope and joy and peace with God. And we've been given that message to go and tell. Father, I love you and I'm so thankful for your word. I pray over these next few moments, Lord, as we respond that you would bring salvation into this room. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's respond.